Meanwhile, recorded live in the Lava Lamp Lounge, it's somewhere in between a radio zine. News, music, culture, stories, and more. This show is what we make of it, and hopefully you'll join us in the fun, too. Now let's get started. And welcome to another interview installment. It's issue 45, the Michael Cassett interview, part three. If you've been following our program the last couple of weeks, then uh, you've been enjoying this kind of extended conversation that we had with television producer and writer Michael Cassett, who was in the middle of telling us about some of his experiences working not only as a writer, but in television, and specifically where we left off, where he worked on Max Headroom, and his feelings about a specific script that he wrote called Security Systems. And he was just about to reveal something about the inner workings of that story. Let's pick up where we left off. And I was also, I mean, the other part of my writing is this sort of journalistic space history thing. Mm -hmm. I was very much aware of and fascinated by a company called TRW at that time. The Thomson Ramo Wooldridge Corporation, or TRW Incorporated to most, is an automotive company that was founded in 1901, making engine valves. Over time, they branched out into the fields of aerospace design building aircraft engines during World War II and the Korean War. In 1964, they began making computer monitors, and by 1970, the Credit Data Group was formed, where they moved into credit reporting. Since then TRW has had their hands in a number of air and space projects, including the development of a number of satellites, rocket engines and ICBMs. The campus is probably familiar to Star Trek fans, if they remember the episode Operation Annihilate, which was filmed at TRW's Redondo Beach location. Based in LA, they not only handled America's credit system, credit checks, this is, you know, it's at the beginning of the cybernetic revolution and computer online banking. Take a spin, now you're in with the techno set, you're going surfing on the internet. But they also built signals intelligence satellites, some of the most secret spy satellites uh, ever. And it always struck me as horrifying that this is somewhere one part of this company was going to talk to the other part of the company and who knew what was going to result. I agree. Projections confirm that Edison Carter will pose a threat to security systems. I can isolate him. And so I will admit now that security systems was actually TRW. Working through some anxiety about that. <laughs> nice. Yes. And I was pleased with the way the episode turned out. I mean, I have seen the episode recently. I think I may have, Steve may have told you guys, and I, or I may have emailed you that we had a kind of a Max Hedrum reunion. This is George had oh. somehow finagled me into agreeing to come to his theater in Santa Fe and spend, I literally spent 11 days living in one yeah. of his guest houses in the basement of it, <laughs> going to his theater every night for like while they ran you know 20 minutes into the future and then every episode of the abc max uh, two episodes a night mm -hmm. and then we finished with a live staged live reading of, of xmas of george's uh 
unproduced Max script. Marie and Theora stand by a bowl of egg-flavored knob as, as various other staffers <laughs> depart to calls of Merry Xmas and good shopping. I warned you not to fritter away all your credit on meaningless things like food and shelter. <laughs> Merry Xmas, Max. <coughs> Xmas? Where are my presents? No presents? Bah. Humbug! <laughs> Ebenezer Headroom. With Matt Frewer there as as Edison Carter and Max. Um, I somehow finagled so Steve and Max to come in for the last last week. But was watching those shows, I was I was pleased with the way security systems held up and, and several of the others. I was watching those shows and some of which I have to tell you, I had never actually seen at least one of those episodes at all, because I don't think it was it was not aired. Um by ABC at the time. Mm, mm -hmm, sort of went mm -hmm. into the vault and it probably aired somewhere else, but I had never seen it. Michael is referring to the episode Baby Grow Bags, the only completed episode of Max Headroom that was never aired during the initial run on ABC. The first time anyone saw this episode was in the late 90s, when the new station called Tech TV started airing Max Headroom, including this never-before-seen gem. Tech TV was only on the air for six years, after which this episode was not available again until the DVD set was released in 2010. Tech TV eventually became the G4 network, which itself folded in 2014, though a relaunch of G4 was announced last year. I was generally quite pleased with certainly the the dialogue and the attitudes. I mean, some of the stories were a little little slow in places and all that. All right, I'll take the long way. And I, I do have some problems. I, I did not like the voice they used for the security systems AI, A7. You can turn me off, but only Max can turn me on. Also thought that the script kind of got a little, like act four is twice as long as it should be, you know, things like that. But mm -hmm. I wasn't in a position to fight at that time. I was just, I was the story editor on Max Headroom, but. I do think I got it. Love it to this day. Man's oh, a gene, gene, genius. I don't know what he'd do without me. Well, could say. I can't. And I don't like the pat, pat, pat myself on the back because, well, <laughs> I can't do that either. But yeah, went Twilight Zone to Max Headroom and then had that experience, which, you know, in the rosy haze of memory looks like it was, uh, all fun. Sunshine, lollipops, and rainbows, everything. But I can tell you by October 1987, when I'd been on the show since February. I think I know where you're going with this. And also, again, it was, this was, they didn't shut down Max bit by bit the way they did Twilight Zone. They came in and just executed Max Headroom as a TV series. Any last words? Nope. What do you want on your tombstone? Pepperoni and cheese. They're doing rewrites on a weekend, knowing that in the next two business days, they were going to pull the plug on us. And I was sitting there watching baseball playoffs out of the corner of my eye while I was doing what I knew was a pointless rewrite. And I actually had a headache the entire time. So it was just sort of, and accumulated stress because it was a very expensive, very complex show to produce in those days. Right. And that's in fact what did it. I mean, the show just was out of control. Lorimar mm -hmm. did not want to spend the money we were spending. I can't afford this. Yeah, there was a lot of taking advantage of the accounting lag, I think. Uh, they didn't, Lorimar, somebody at Lorimar didn't realize till it was too late that, oh, we're over budget, over budget. Come on, we're wasting money, we're wasting money. I'm 
still in touch with Peter Wagg to some degree and, and have affection for him, but I don't think he cared particularly. I mean, and there's no reason why he would. I mean, I used to say of, of Peter and Steve with great affection that they not only didn't want to do American television, they'd never seen it. Can you describe them for me, please? So <laughs> it's like, we're doing what we need to do. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was happy to do that. Steve used to call me the, the little Swiss clockmaker because I was even then into working regular hours. And I, I did a, a draft of a script kind of in the middle of the sequence where I already knew we were in big budget trouble. And so I wrote one that could actually have been shot easily in seven days. I mean, I consolidated locations. I, I did a lot of some of the tricks of the trade that would stand me well even now. And Peter sent it back saying, you know, Michael, it's too small. Make it bigger. Well, I, uh, that is. So I made it bigger and thus more expensive, much more expensive. Rumor has it that season two is supposed to be 13 episodes, which would mean that there were five other episodes that just never got produced. And we were wondering if you could talk about any of the plans that existed for the rest of the series that never got made. Well, I mean, when they pulled the plug on us, I think we were, we had started production on episode seven of those of that 13. Hmm. And it was my script and it was called Families. And it was about Edison having to deal with his, the visit by his mother and father. And then them having to deal with Max. Hi, hi. No, this is not a blip, 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 bird. This is Max Hedrum on Network 23. Is he a... Because they have a new kid, basically. Is he a (laughs) child? What? Yeah, what is he? Mm -hmm. So, and that was what I was rewriting on October 14th watching the twins and tigers in some baseball game and resenting the whole situation by then because we went out to shoot like one day of it and then we're had just started like toward the end of day two that tuesday the word came out we're done and it was just stop what you're doing just stop whereas like with twilight zone they had canceled us but they had allowed us to continue to, to finish producing a couple of episodes mm-hmm. that were already ready to go and prepped and sunk cost. A lot of money had been put into them already. We must find a way to recoup on our investment. No, but with uh, Max, they just, you know, pulled the plug right then. And right. we were actually shooting on the uh, a giant tower in downtown LA. We literally had a crew on the roof doing some helicopter or steady cam stuff and they just stopped. Now, here's a brief excerpt from episode four of our podcast. Writing and Producing the Future, where we hosted a panel discussion with Brian Frankish, Steve Roberts, and Michael Cassett, all together. I got this phone call from Wag saying, We've been canceled. And I said, I was going, Wag, what does that mean? He said, We're not shooting tomorrow. We're not just canceled. Yes, we're, 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 mm. we're killed. <laughs> Mid episode. <laughs> You should listen to the entire conversation featured in that episode. And we had a huge party somewhere that night, somewhere downtown, as I recall. It it's, was fuzzy the day after, and it's even fuzzier now. What did you do last night? Last night? Um... <laughs> um, 
But right. one of the scripts was that. One of the scripts was uh, George's Xmas, the right. holiday episode. On the screens throughout the control room, we see the opening credits of the zigzag Xmas telephone. Zigzag's 12 hours of Xmas, subliminal images of thousands of products flicker across the screen. Where everybody shops, you know, it's the, whoever spends the most money has got the most Xmas spirit. <laughs> and I think there was one other one. But that was the other problem is we were starting to get, it was going to be tight for us to finish those 13 scripts. We're not going to make it. I mean, we had, there are a couple of people we had added to the staff, mm. um, but it was still largely Steve and me doing everything else. As often the case. I mean, these days, the showrunner is that person. Mm -hmm. uh, but in, in that era, Peter was not a writer. And so it was Steve as the primary rewriter of everything and me as the other writer kind of doing, I love it was baseball. I would be the, you know, the middle reliever when your team's getting blown out. You know, the guy you bring in the third inning to try to get you to the seventh or eighth. Mm -hmm. And then Steve would come in and, and polish things up. Get it all the way there. You can actually hear Austin pretend he knows enough about baseball to follow Michael's analogy. Yeah. To the extent we are just, to quote another old science fiction writer who worked in television, the scripts were never actually finished. They were simply abandoned. While Michael is not specific about who he is quoting, there are a number of possible people who have said similar things that could be the person of which Michael is thinking. Among those who have been quoted as saying a version of this phrase are Paul Valery, W.H. Auden, Anais Nin, Maya Deren, Jean Cocteau, Esther Kellner, Jean Fowler, Gore Vidal, Marianne Moore, George Lucas and Oscar Wilde, to name a few. Since they each made the claim about different forms of art, and since Paul Valéry said it the earliest in relation to poetry, the rest could be just invoking him. <laughs> you know, just. Uh, I, I feel like I've done that with a few uh, short we stories. We got what too. we got. Uh -huh. <laughs> All right, that's enough. Let's go. It's a key part of my evolution and, and transformation because. For sure. Even as I look at my career, that's kind of the highlight of my career. It's the one thing oh. that I look back on that. Even to this day, people know. You certainly carved out this kind of genre fiction reputation for yourself, you know, with a lot of the shows you worked on. And uh, it made, it, there's one thing that kind of stands out in your resume, uh, and it's a series of numbers, uh, 90210? Yes, that's under the heading of, it's a more complicated story than it seems, and it seemed like a good idea at the time. Hmm. <laughs> Well, I know Heather's a big fan, so... Uh... Yes, I've got to say, I have even revisited 90210 as an adult, and I really enjoyed yeah. the program, so I think it's definitely a great move. It was it was when I was ultimately ill-suited to, but it came about for the best of reasons, Is and it's kind of going back to when I was at CBS as a, ultimately a still a junior-level executive, I was a children's programming executive when I left, hmm. the... A, a similar junior executive in drama development was a guy named Jonathan Levin. Primarily a television producer, Jonathan Levin has largely been known as the president of Spelling Television, where he oversaw the production of every show they made. Since Aaron Spelling's death in 2006, and Spelling Television has been subsumed into CBS Television, Jonathan has become a consulting producer on a few shows, and then executive producer a couple more times. But it seems that, for now, he might be, more or less, retired. And he was a huge science fiction fan. In the mainstream, you know, dealing, de developing Magnum P.I. and shows like Simon and Simon, you walk into his <laughs> office and you would see not just, you know, 
maybe a Heinlein or a big science fiction writer or an Arthur C. Clarke, you'd see Gordon Dixon, you saw Frank Herbert. He had all these, he was a science fiction reader and he knew and I knew that we were those guys. Gordon, Batu, Barada, Nick Toe. And so we said, you know, someday we've got to work together. Well, fast forward 10 or 12 years. He's the president of Aaron Spelling's television division. Doing Melrose Place in 90210, but dying to do some science fiction. So this is after I'd done Strange Luck. People say I'm lucky. It all began in a plane crash 30 years ago. 106 lives ending in a single heartbeat. Not a soul survived. Except me. My crack agents at CAA got me a two-script deal at Spelling mm. to develop science fiction shows. And I don't even know how much of this is well known. One of the ones I developed was a big space thing with George R.R. R. Martin called The Star Traders. Not to be confused with The Star Traders video game written by Dave Kaufman in 1974 and ported to a number of platforms in the years afterwards, or The Star Traders, Frontiers game that was released by Steam in 2018. That we sold to NBC. Huh. Look at that. It was one of the few times I've turned in a script it's the opposite of what I was doing with Max when I turned that first script in and I knew it was gold. This is one, I turned this script in and I, I knew it was not going to work because <laughs> the concept was too big for the one hour they gave us. It's like I, I turned in about an 80 page draft. Well, that's a long, 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 long story. And it was also, I just knew the wrong project for those for NBC at that time, which they ultimately quickly agreed with. Um, I'm going to pass. <laughs> um, yeah, not for us. And that has sat there for a while, and George and I occasionally toy with reviving it, but I think it, too much of it has been subsumed into, too many people have done too many things like it since. Mm. But it was a cool idea at the time. Better luck next time. The other one I developed was called Handyman, which was about a, basically a Twilight Zone style thing about an ordinary guy who's like struck I mean, literally struck by lightning or something and winds up with these these strange powers. And it was supposed to be for Luke Perry. As an actor, I don't want to draw any lines. I want to do it all. I want to show it all. But um, the network constraints do not allow that, you know, as you guys know. And it was sold at CBS so late in the process that they read the script, really liked it, and said, we want to hold on to this for a year. Mm. We can't do anything with it now, but we might next year. Better luck next time. So that kind of left me like, okay, now what am I doing? And. I had a conversation with Jonathan and he said, well, we really like you. We'd like to have you around, but you know, we have not, you know, unless you want to be on one of our shows, it's not like we can you know, pay you just sit in an office and, you know, maybe theoretically develop something. Would you like to work on one of our shows? And it was, you know, Melrose Place and 90210 and, and he, said 90210 might be a good place for you for this reason, is they had just finished their initial run. The kids had just gotten out of college. They're going into a new life. We're, we got a new team coming in. We're gonna do something entirely different. And I, like a fool, believed it. <laughs> what an imbecile. What an ultra maroon. <laughs> also, the kind of number two writer on the show was J. 
John Isendrath. The writer and television producer, John Isendrath is best known these days as the creator and showrunner of the legal drama Outlaw and the football drama Playmakers, and as the executive producer on The Blacklist. But his career goes back to the late 80s, when both he and Michael were writers on TV 101 and WIOU, where Michael took a more genre-focused path. John went on to work on Malibu Shores, Felicity, and Alias. He was a good friend of mine, somebody who I had nurtured early in my career on WIOU, uh, he created, but I hired him on TV uh, 101 in 1988 and then worked for him and his wife on WIOU. And so I liked and respected John a lot. I mean, he's gone on, he's, uh, what is it, the um, James Spader show. The Blacklist. Mm. Um, that's his show. Mm-hmm. that he's been doing. So I was working on, uh, I'll, I'll go, do, go do that. And I, and also I have to frankly admit that the amount of money they offered was the largest pile of cash I've ever seen in my life. Nice. And I was also at that point now, 15 or 16 years into my just television career and certainly 10 years into my full-time writing career, having written a lot of pilots, having worked on a bunch of interesting shows that never went past a second season. Mm-hmm. It's like, wouldn't it be interesting to try just basic straight ahead TV to see what it's like? You know, it's a nice change of pace. And I did. And I had worked with a, a largely a great group of people, you know, Laurie McCarthy, Al Tridman, uh, John. Uh, they were, it were fun. It was an interesting thing to plot. It was fascinating to work with Aaron Spelling, who was very hands-on with the show. 90210 was his baby. Let me show you how it's done. We did 32 hours of television that year, that first year. Wow. We were double shooting <laughs> most of the season. That's so like crazy. every seven days, you had to have two new scripts in production and two new scripts ready to go into prep. It was wow. mind-boggling. <laughs> Sounds like a lot of work. You just heard part three of our conversation with Michael Cassett, the story editor, producer, science fiction writer, and generally excellent person who happened to work on The Twilight Zone and Max Hedrum, among many other things, as it turns out. Why not visit the show notes on this particular episode, betweenradiozine.com, and you'll find a link to a video of this conversation that you can watch and enjoy at your leisure. Thank you. That's going to do it for us this week here on the program. Somewhere in between a radio zine, the Michael Cassett interview. Part 3, issue 45, contained the Michael Cassett interview, part 3, written by Heather Zykowski and Austin Rich, and featuring a conversation with Michael Cassett. 
You know, the only times I cared about 90210 was when the Flaming Lips or the Cramps were playing the Peach Pit. Yes, that really did happen. <sighs> wow. The 90s were really, really strange, let me tell you. This episode was produced by Austin Rich in the Lava Lamp Lounge and was assembled using only the finest in 20th century technology. In the long-standing tradition of most zines, there is an open submission policy here. If you have a story, music, or poetry that you would like to send in or read, or just want to be a part of the show, why not drop a line to austinrich at gmail.com. That's going to do it for us this week. You guys are wonderful. You guys are beautiful. And without you, there would be no program. Be seeing you. Be seeing you.